morning. A couple of housekeeping things. Uh, on your tables is a or several sheets that have the verses we'll use today. They're from the message translation if you prefer to read up close. But they also will be on the screen. Also, you've heard the phrase, when the cat's away, the mice play. Well, heads up, people. <laughs> when I've done this before, cat and Mrs. Cat were not in here. So... I am going to pretend like I'm talking, and you need to pretend like you're listening. That would be really helpful today. Okay, here's what we just measured. We measured your disobedience versus your compliance metric. Are there any tables that did not hold up their heart? How did we do? 17 out of 20. Very good. Well, and 17 out of 19, because we wouldn't count that table. So, very good. Um, I have to tell you that a fellow, um, I'm a teacher by trade, not now, but um, a teacher in the back room. <laughs> you, I said, this looks like a teacher exercise, doesn't it? And she went, oh, yes. <laughs> so, thank you for cooperating. There was a point. It's really helpful for us to figure out where we fall on a disobedience versus compliance metric. When I was the principal of my last middle school, for some insane reason, we had a staff development on a weeknight, and you don't ask teachers to come back on a weeknight. So I thought I would do something similar to this, where there would be an activity on the board when they walked in, because many of them did that in their classrooms. So they came in, and most of them started on the activity, and the uh, in-school suspension teacher, who came a few minutes late, of course, says, I am not going to do that. And I said, well, aren't you a perfect fit to be an in-school suspension? Because every time I put kids in your class, they've just told me, I am not going to do it. (laughs) So who are the Garys in the room? His name was Gary. Who who took a look at that and went, I'm not going to do that? Will anybody admit to that? (laughs) He's saying Mrs. Cat did, but I'm not going to believe it. Um. And how many of you just did it at all costs, even if I'd said up there, stand up and walk out of the room? Who's overly compliant? Would any of you say that you're overly compliant? (laughs) Oh, well, I hope that lasts. We'll see. There's a balanced approach. Some of you might have read the screen carefully, pondered what it asked you to do, and then decided whether it was okay to move forward or not. What I'm after is this balanced approach. Because middle ground is thoughtful ground. You're willing to comply, but with tested reason. Obey what or whom and why. And resist who and when. The most critical component of a balanced approach is that it works with God. And he is the most important teacher in the room. When you get balance right, you produce strength. We know that disease happens when our bodies are out of balance. Mental disorders mean that thought processes are out of balance. Too much of this or too little of that just wreak havoc in every life situation. Whatever you shared at your table that you disobeyed was something that was out of balance with what you should have done. And we don't just disobey our reasoning. We also disobey our instincts. I was driving in the right lane down the interstate and had this sudden thought, 
It's really more like an imperative, change lanes. And I remember distinctly saying, why? I don't need to change lanes. Two seconds later, a rock cracked my windshield. God knows we live in a dangerous world. And instincts, when we place them under God's oversight, serve as important warning systems that need our reasoned obedience. Now, most of us could give a thumbnail sketch of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Guys, you know that it's our fault and we try to defend ourselves. But Genesis 2 says that Adam was put in the garden to work it and to keep it in order. He was given permission by God to eat everything in the garden except, of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I am going to have to admit that Adam did appear to be doing fine at this point before Eve came along. (laughs) Apparently, he was placed in the garden and didn't eat it on his own. But then the animals were named by Adam and then Eve was created. The serpent challenged Eve on what God had said, that they would die if they ate from that tree. He said, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll know what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. Think of your small children, or at least when your children were small. What you want for them or wanted for them was for them to hold on to their innocence. You wanted them to hold on to not knowing everything. You want them to trust you to lead them. The world, over time, seduces them through all kinds of portals to know more and more. The more they come to know in the world, the more they think they know and the less they want to hear from you. Your kids, over time, trade in their trust in you, their obedience of you, and their willingness to run to you. They turn to the world. In the garden... We didn't just adopt a sin nature and put on some required clothing. We forfeited our very strength to trust God, to obey God, and to run to God. So it looks like strength is not having to know everything when knowing everything belongs to God. Don't we still try to know what is only God's to know? If we could read the future through whatever means we would, horoscopes, palm reading, tarot cards, When we chase future knowledge, we forfeit our trust in God to have that part under control. To this day, we do not properly audit the persuasion of the enemy. Every day we're persuaded by the temptation to be like God. Every day we have to reckon with that persuasion and realign ourselves with God. Or we're eating more of that fruit. We just saw in Genesis 2 that Adam was working in the garden. He was told to keep it in order. This was before the serpent and Eve changed everything. No sin nature, no forfeit of trust in God, yet work to be done in a perfect garden to enjoy. So it stands to reason that heaven will also have work to be done in a perfect environment to enjoy. But entrance back into such a place requires what? a redo of our trust in God. He says the way of return to fellowship with him is to recognize and believe in his son. We can't see that reality with our eyes. So once again, we're invited to trust him by knowing less than he does, obeying him, and running to him. It's quite an amazing life cycle. 
I'm convinced that God calls us to strength almost as a prerequisite to loving others well. And we know he calls us to love. Jeff gave me this date to speak several weeks ago. I I felt the message was to be about strength, so I started looking for passages. Strength and strong appear over 300 times in the Bible. So it's not a subject God takes lightly. So I settled on Colossians 1, 9 through 12. So when Jeff texted me a couple of weeks ago and said, what is your passage? And I texted this back. He said, that's interesting. That's one of the passages I had already noted as part of this series. And so I think that God takes those wow moments to make sure that we are encouraged and want to keep pursuing the work that we do with him. In this passage, Paul is speaking to the church in Colossae. He's impressed with how love has been worked into their lives by the Spirit, and he continues with these words. Be assured that from the first day we heard of you, we haven't stopped praying for you, asking God to give you wise minds and spirits attuned to his will, and so acquire a thorough understanding of the ways in which God works. We pray that you'll live well for the Master, making him proud of you as you work hard in his orchard As you learn more and more about how God works, you'll learn how to do your work. We pray that you'll have the strength to stick it out over the long haul. Not the grim strength of gritting your teeth, but the glory strength that God gives. It is strength that endures the unendurable and spills over into joy, thanking the Father who makes us strong enough to take part in everything bright and beautiful that he has for us. Years ago, I had a critical question for God. I went out on my deck, somehow believing that it was time to ask the question and probably get an answer. I get these urges at times because what I care about most is God's opinion for our everyday lives. My question applied to believers only, those who have access to the power of Christ by virtue of being in a a relationship with him. Lord, why are so many living defeated lives, anxiety-ridden, over-medicated and depressed, while others, even in the most daunting of circumstances, live with joy and hope, overcoming each day's adversity with peace and power, sleeping deeply at night, believing that tomorrow may be tough but doable? What is the secret to their overcoming living? The phrase was clear in that hearing zone that is impossible to define. Feed your strength. I don't know how God delivers a tidal wave of meaning in in three words, but I knew even then that he was. I've spent over 12 years absorbing that meaning, translating it into different areas of my life and turning my search into words and investigations that others might want to hear. This strength is like background music. Every day you go through the relationships, the tasks of life, making countless decisions. But like the passage says, all of your day's work in reality is working hard in the orchard of the Lord. If your decisions keep you attuned to his will and you learn more and more how God works, you're actually learning how to do your work. Most of the time we skip the background music and tune in our decisions to our will, thinking we can do our work just fine, thank you. 
We forget that in God's view, learning how to do his work is a prerequisite for learning how to do our work. Paul says he's praying for the church to have the strength to stick it out over the long haul. Not the grim strength of gritting your teeth, but the glory strength that God gives. We've been choosing the hard way ever since the garden. Now, admittedly, I know nothing about horses. And there's some real horse people in here. (laughs) So they're probably cringing. But because I watched the movie The Horse Whisperer, I'm just going to act for a moment like I know something. You know how the ads used to be like, I'm an expert at this or that because I stayed in a Holiday Inn last night. But the truth is, I have no idea when and why you corral horses. But in the movie, the injured horse was corralled to become ready for re-entry into the best version of horse life. Once again, entering into relationship and feeling useful and like he belonged. I think strength training is like entering a corral. Our strength to trust God, obey God, and run to God was injured in the garden. We need a time to prepare for reentry into the best version of our life. Then we can be our best in relationships. We can find ourselves useful, and we find, we find out that we belong. Left to our own devices, we are unbridled and attuned only to our will. We so easily forget that being attuned to our will got us injured in the first place. Maybe eight years ago, I told my adult children that I was going to make it my job to research the best way to age. That would be my gift to them. I wanted to understand how to keep moving with the least pain, the least disease, and the most mobility. Now, there is a secret to research. We're strengthened in correlation to how we let the facts change our behavior. I was alive when it was okay to smoke. Ever so slowly, facts emerged that proved it was not okay for our health. And yet, to this day, some of us smoke because we've not let the facts change our behavior. The smoker has yet to enter the corral that will strengthen him or her. There are many corrals available to us. The best part of this story is that if you're working in the orchard, freely attuning yourself to his will, he'll become your strength training coach. He'll tailor your program so that you enter each corral when you need it. He knows whether you're in disobedience or overcompliance mode, and he waits for the moment when balance and obedience, for good reasons, will win your heart and you'll be willing to enter that corral. Here's a corral everyone understands, food. So when I said I wanted to understand what food leads to the least pain, least disease, and most mobility, I had to let facts influence me. I began with Genesis 129 where God says to Adam, I've given you every sort of seed-bearing plant on earth and every kind of fruit-bearing tree given to them, given to them to you for food. So I have to tell you, Jeff is holding his breath right now because he thinks I'm going to launch into this vegan cheerleading thing, (laughs) but I'm not. If you want to know later (laughs) what I think about that, you can ask. But here's a true story about how God works with you in your corral. I get up insanely early because I love to. Somehow my energy lies right there in those wee hours, and I drink almost 12 cups of coffee, like a whole pot. (laughs) Minus the cup my husband may salvage when he gets up. It is my most treasured time in that orchard. 
So not long after I launched my food investigation, someone challenged me on how much coffee I drink. I didn't really have an answer. (laughs) So I just thought, God, I'm going to need you to clarify that. So I was in the kitchen early on a Sunday morning. We used to serve brownies on the coffee bar, and they had to be made like 5 in the morning. And uh, my husband was watching yet again, to which I was hostage, um, the show How Do They Make It. Do y'all watch that? Y'all don't watch How Do You Make It? Oh, I was going to say, I've watched 100 uh, shows <laughs> at least. The episode was about harvesting coffee beans, and my ears perked up when I heard Coffee is a seed-bearing plant. (laughs) And now, I just think God gave me that. (laughs) I mean, I was being assured that I'm just consuming a pot of what he gave us back in the garden. So I had my answer. Now, there are many corrals we need to enter to build our strength for eternity. That's our real goal here. We're building our strength for our work and our lives in eternity. As we recover our strength in each corral, remember we're more in line with God and at his tortoise-like pace that is so maddening, he's moving us to an unseen future. Look toward the end of the passage. Paul says he's praying that we'll have the strength to stick it out over the long haul, not the grim strength of gritting our teeth, but the glory strength that God gives. It is strength that endures the unendurable and spills over into joy. Thanking the Father who makes us strong enough to take part in everything bright and beautiful that he has for us. He has bright and beautiful here as well as in an unseen future, eternity. But here's the weirdest concept I know. (laughs) This is the hardest um, fact to embrace if you're a Christ follower and you are trying to influence others to be that as well. Our suffering through the storms of life under God's supervision mysteriously translates into strength. God's instrument of choice for our journey seems to be whatever measure of suffering we need to become strong. Think of parents that hover. I walked to school every day for years, with or without a coat. My mom just left it up to me. I stopped at my neighbor's house to get my friend Lisa, who had a helicopter mother. That's a hovering mother. And she'd be aghast at the times that I chose to go coatless. Of course, it'd be the coldest days. But she could never make sense of why I got sick so much less than Lisa. I'm convinced these years later that I challenged my immune system and thereby strengthened it. We don't strengthen without challenge. The more you bail yourself or your child out from challenge, the weaker you will become. My youngest daughter was an athlete here, and she was hugely disliked by a group of girls. Now, I'm sure she did her part in antagonizing the situation, but it was hard to keep my mouth shut when she would relay the latest meanness that they would express to her. I could only say, persevere. High school does not mimic life so closely. What I knew, and I hated that I knew this, was that she would be the stronger and hopefully more tender for it. She would see she survived, and she might be more sensitive to others in her adult world. And now at 28, she has a track record for how to strengthen and survive, and she can apply apply those lessons to each new life venture. 
you may as well not enter a corral for strength training if you don't have some sense of and trust in God's goodness. Paul notes that he, in prayer, is thanking the Father who makes us strong enough to take part in everything bright and beautiful that he has for us. Well, why put yourself in a corral for strength training that apparently will entail suffering, if not for the hope and trust of something good? Perhaps the best strengthening story is one of the very place in which you sit. Our church used to be prickly, with a capital P. Prickly people take offense. They're quick to launch criticism. And in a church, practice this especially toward a pastor or anyone who might be um, in the process of change. Two pastors ago, Eddie led this church as a Southern Baptist, choir-driven, Sunday school-clad church, much like the other Baptist churches in town. Eddie's gift, however began to rub the visible and the invisible leadership the wrong way because his gift was unequivocally pursuing God's agenda for this church. If and when he needed, he thought change was needed, he stepped into the inevitable quagmire. Somewhere along the way, two deacons decided Eddie had to go. Some of us fired back with a letter read from the stage praising Eddie and his wife, Sandy, for always pursuing God's agenda for this church. As everyone stood in ovation for them, the two deacons grabbed their families and literally walked out the door. It was my first glimpse of the riveting power of God when we attuned to his will and hold on for dear life. Eddie foresaw the change in music, let drums sit on the stage for months, He authored and published a book, What Does Prayer Enable God to Do? He navigated never-ending landmines of hostility, all from people who were prickly and believed that church ownership rested in their hands. Some of us began to wonder what would happen if we gave total ownership of the church to God, totally disregarding our schemes and our plans. We were about to see. Eddie knew when he had braved all the waters of change that were his to face. He left to pastor a church in a neighboring county, and I was part of the pastor search committee that visited a large Baptist church in Asheville to get tips for our assignment. When we asked their leadership how they went about choosing a new pastor, they said their first step was to ask the congregation what they wanted. Something just didn't ring right about that. Aren't we working in God's orchard, not ours? Shouldn't he be leading the charge, not us? If we want our church to enter a corral of strengthening, chances are none of us is the church whisperer. So we just said, okay, God, bring us who you want. Don't pay any attention to what we think we need. Remember that adage about suffering? (laughs) That line, we pray that you'll have the strength to stick it out over the long haul. Not the grim strength of gritting your teeth, but the glory strength God gives. I won't say we didn't grit our teeth a lot. But I can tell you there was some glory strength going on. Because every little while, one of those visible and invisible leaders, you know, those who whisper and plot with or without authority, would simply resign. Or they just leave altogether. We just watched in awe. 
The pastor we thought God led us to, named Greg, couldn't get the required number of votes from members, so he came as an interim and stayed. He brought in technology. We attended conferences and read books on strategy and leadership and continued Eddie's change toward the music that we know today. The choir loft was dismantled. The pews were sent to a church, I think, in Mexico. Musicians poured in from God knows where, because obviously we have more talent than a small place like this should have. Prickly left. But it dispersed itself all over town, taking liberties with describing us as the place to avoid, the place that didn't teach Jesus. (laughs) Greg held on for all that was his time to hold. He hired Jeff and Jody. Uh, She came as a licensed pastor as well. They came as youth pastors, and then one day Greg resigned. Jeff, who admits that he never aspired to be a lead pastor because he was so good at being a youth pastor, stepped in a really scary vacuum. By now, we weren't prickly, but nor were we planted. Planted, I think, on a, as a church continuum. Churches fall somewhere between prickly and planted. Obviously, we're hoping, hoping to go toward planted. We were like the man in need of a heart transplant, hanging on to life, but in critical need of surgery. God was the owner, right? We had asked him to take over years before. We were in the stage of enduring the unendurable. But we surely were not spilling over into any kind of joy that we could discern. We were just talking each other off the ledge. But God was faithful. You know how a donor heart arrives in a cooler? Have you ever heard that? (laughs) I always think a cooler is carrying a heart, a human heart. Well, just as that was an unassuming tote, our heart arrived in the form of Jeff. Certainly unassuming in the look of a pastor. But in his and Jody's very DNA lies the gift God treasures the most. The gift of giving love and acceptance to broken, hurting people, regardless of cost or expectation. Jeff and Jody's leadership heart is the transplant we need to strengthen toward being a planted church. Consider this from Jeremiah 17. But blessed is the man who trusts me, God. The woman who sticks with God, they're like trees replanted in Eden, putting down roots near the river, never a worry through the hottest of summers, never dropping a leaf, serene and calm through droughts, bearing fresh fruit every season. We have intentionally put ourselves in the corral of the only true church whisperer. We remain there today and hopefully become more and more broken in and thus strengthened for Christ. Our true calling is through him in this community and this world. We work in God's orchard to learn our work. The band, please join me back on stage. Paul's compliment to the church of Colossae was that they had the spirit of love worked into them. They had allowed it. When we seek a balanced approach to life that leads to our strengthening, we can better avoid disobedience or blind compliance. We reason, we submit, we grow strong. We're available as individuals and a church to have love worked into us by the very Spirit of God. 
Just yesterday, long after this message was written, I came across the most stunning picture of the ultimate strength in trusting God. This was taken from a from one of the inner walls of one of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany at the end of the Second World War. It is a prayer written by an unknown hand. O Lord, when I shall come with glory into your kingdom, do not remember only the men of goodwill. Remember also the men of evil. May they be remembered not only for their acts of cruelty in this camp, the evil that they have done to us prisoners, but balance against their cruelty the fruits we have reaped under the stress and in the pain, the comradeship, the courage, the greatness of heart, the humility and patience which have been born in us and become part of our lives because we have suffered at their hands. Don't miss this. May the memory of us not be a nightmare to them when they stand in your judgment. And may all that we have suffered be acceptable to you, Lord, as a ransom for them. I'll leave you with this passage from Colossians 3. So, Grove Church, chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet, strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the Master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, Wear love. It's your basic, all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let's pray. Lord, you know how much I love this place and these people, but it doesn't hold a candle to how you feel about us. Help us freely enter your orchard, both individually and as a church, to work at getting to know you so that we may in turn do our work. Feed our strength. Tailor your strength-building plan to each of us as only you can do. We praise you for who you are and for your faithfulness to complete all that you have begun. Keep us close. Help us dress daily in your garment of love. Again and always, we recommit that this place belongs exclusively to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.